here in the house of the Lord together? I sure love it. I've also been enjoying his, his big world, uh, his big creation and the beauty of, of this area. Um, my wife and I have been trying to, to get out uh, in it and uh, went down to, to Morro Bay and did some hiking and we like to ride bikes as well now that the sun is out. And we actually, we just wanted to invite any of you who want to come along uh, in a couple weeks from now on a Saturday, the 25th, is that when we're planning? Uh, we're just going to ride out San Simeon Creek uh, Road, about five miles each way. We'll ride out till it gets steep, then turn around. You can go further if you want. Uh, if anybody rides and just wants to meet us down there by San Simeon Campground, it'd be fun just to do that together. Um, it's not a big scheduled thing on the calendar. It's just uh, that's what I'm going to do that day. And we'd love to see you. Kids are dismissed. Okay, they're already gone. That was easy. We're flying through this. Uh, you ever read a, a book or watch a movie, hear a story, where, there, where the villain is a character that you never would have expected? You know, somewhere in the point toward the end, you're like, oh, my goodness, I never would have thought of that. So I want you to, if you can think of that, turn to somebody near you and tell them what that story is briefly. So some of you didn't know I was going to ask you to do something. So the question again is, if you've read a book or watched a movie and there's a villain and you didn't know what, who it was until the end and were surprised by, oh, that's who it was all along, uh, think about that and tell that to the person next to you. That's good. I, three of you have had that experience. This happens to me. No, no, you're, you're good. Good. Uh, this happened to me in in the Star Wars movies, like the the early the. Well, how do you say the early ones? The early ones that came out later. It's like, oh no way. That's how that all pans out. But here's where I was really, really surprised. Has anyone seen Hoodwinked? I don't want to give any spoilers in case you haven't seen it, but I did not see that coming. Is telling you. Well, in real life. Uh, sometimes people pretend to be one thing, but are really something else underneath. Um, sometimes we find out they are discovered, and sometimes we just we just never know. People get away with that. They they sneak around being one thing and presenting themselves in another way. This happens, unfortunately, sometimes in the church. In fact, I don't know if you've ever heard people say this. I don't go to church because they're a bunch of why does everybody know that? Um, because, because there must be some, some truth to that. And, and really, I think this is the main point in our passage this morning, is not everyone at church is sincere. Don't start looking around at each other. But it's a fact, and we're going to see it in this, this passage. But certainly, not everyone is insincere either. It's good to tuck that away. Uh, so we're in, uh, we've been studying First and Second Timothy, for those who haven't been with us. We're about halfway through the book of Second Timothy, the letter from Paul to younger Timothy, telling him how to set things in order in the church and how to persevere for the sake of the church. First Timothy uh, starts off like this. To Timothy, my true or kind of literally genuine child in the faith. From the very beginning of the book, Paul is saying, Timothy, you, you're, the real, you're the real deal. And uh, I want you to keep pursuing genuineness because just a few verses later he says, the aim of our charge 
kind of the whole goal direction of all of this is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, so the whole, uh, this whole book, uh, or these whole two books, letters that Paul's writing to Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, I know you're the real, you're the real deal, you're sincere, and I want you to keep being that, but I want you to realize that not everybody at church is sincere. And so this morning, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, first nine verses, and looking at what we might call hidden enemies, enemies among us. Uh, we're going to look at how we should respond to uh, hypocrisy or hidden enemies in the church. Uh, we'll look at four different responses or, or reactions um, that are a biblical way to, uh, to respond to this fact that not everybody in the church is sincere. This morning, uh, I'd like to just read the whole passage to us uh, first, starting in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self and lovers of money. They'll be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-controlled. They'll be brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Let's just pause and ask the Lord to teach us this morning. Father God, thank you for your word that's, that's powerful and it's relevant, and I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So four reasons, or four responses, to hypocrisy or hidden enemies in the church. And the very first one is just uh, don't be unaware that there's hidden enemies in the church. Uh, this is, the, it starts out this way, it's the first of two imperatives or commands in this whole section, it says this, but understand this, <laughs> know this, be aware of this, use your senses to understand two things. First, it'll be difficult in the last days. We're going to expect that. Second, some of that difficulty will come from within, those, in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness. So he's warning uh, Timothy, it, it's going to get hard. And some of that reason it's going to get hard is because people within the church culture are, are going to be fakes, so to speak. Big warning. As soon as you point the finger at hypocrites, you're in danger of being one yourself. So we need to put a guard from the beginning as we start talking about this so beware not everyone at church is sincere but first we look inward if we're being aware we think oh is that me i wasn't going to mention this but sometimes when something's on my mind i just have to say it to to get it out but i don't know if any of you who listen to uh, brian regan he's a comedian and he muses about um 
about how they name uh, bandits, like the geezer bandit or something. And he says, what if the, the beer belly bandit is, is, you know, at large? And someone calls in from the bar. I think I've seen the beer belly bandit. Oh, wait, I think the bartender's the beer belly bandit. Wait a minute. I think I'm the beer belly bandit. And uh, so I, I just say that because we need to, you know, we're looking around, but we need to look at uh, ourselves first of all. So Paul gives this big list, and I like to read it kind of slow. So we could think about, are there any seeds of this in, in my own life? Is, is this, do any of these things characterize me or any of these things even just a hint of it? And uh, this in the end of verse 2 through verse 4. It's quite a list. Lovers of self. Well, we're, we're all in danger of that, putting ourselves before others. Lovers of money or things. It's easy for that to get money to get its claws on us. Proud, arrogant, abusive or hateful speech, just saying hateful words to people. Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful, just this attitude of, you know, grumpiness about things. Unholy, heartless. Literally, it's without feeling. You know, devoid of feeling or affection, unappeasable, not willing to to reconcile. You have a, a problem with somebody, or just say, like, "I'm I." That's their problem. I'm not going to deal with it. Slanderous, without self control, just given into whatever whims or passions. Brutal or harsh, not loving good. Treacherous, traitors, reckless. Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Taken as a whole, that list is just, these are just really terrible people. But I think as we slow down, we could see little seeds of, ooh, that, that could creep up in my life. And looking within to make sure there's not any of that hypocrisy in our own lives. So as I was trying to, uh, I was studying, I was trying to think of what's kind of the essence or gist of this list. How can I summarize it in in, in a word, or maybe what's the main point of it. And, and uh, in passing, one of the commentaries noted that this is probably a, a chiastic structure, and I know that's probably talking gibberish to most of us, but in the, in the ancient Near East and biblical writings especially, it's real common to use this, um, this format where it's, um, there's parallel statements that go to the middle like this. And so the first thing lines up with the last thing, and the second thing with the second to last, etc., like that. We see it in all kinds of places in the Bible, some very obvious, some more subtle. And it's like in our Western culture, America especially, we think in five-paragraph essays. Because we do that in school, you know, we're applying for school colleges, you know, five-paragraph essays. And uh, we even do that in casual conversation. Like, you need to clean your room right now. You know, introduction, because one, you know, first point, um, it's really a mess. Two, your uh, grandparents are coming over. Three, you're like, oh, I just wrote a five-paragraph essay without even thinking about it. So all I have to say is that uh, I'm not saying Paul is necessarily making some elaborate structure, but he just thinks that way. Here's what I found out. I don't know if you could read that. It's tiny, but I just will summarize It starts, lovers of self, lovers of money, then at the end, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In the second pair, proud, arrogant, and then swollen with conceit. 
See, they, they keep pairing. Uh, abusive, reckless. Disobedient to parents, which would be a huge treachery in, in that culture especially, paired with treacherous, and so on, paired right to the middle to where the main point is always right in the middle, and that is slanderous. I thought, how does slanderous summarize that whole kind of character? Slanderous, it's the same word used for uh, the, the devil, and when it's singular, it's usually uh, as a proper name, the, the slanderer, the devil. It's somebody who wants, uh, who desires the downfall of other people. I think maybe the essence of this is people who want to preserve themselves at the expense of seeing others fail, see others stumble. And that's what was happening in this church in Ephesus. Um, this group of you know, hidden enemies, they wanted to see others crash and burn. How do people get this way? when they want to see others fail. They want to see others ruin the reputation. They, they get this uh, ungenuineness about them. Uh, they get this way, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So when we go through the motions, we have the shape, the outward externals of religion, of spiritual things, maybe spiritual knowledge, but we deny the real power of a relationship with God we are setting ourselves up for hypocrisy. That's what happens. We pull out the life-giving, uh, we, we detach from the vine of Christ and think that we could just muster up this uh, religiousness on our own. And it's, it's, it's nonsense. Uh, trying to live the godly life without God's power, it will actually rot your soul, and that's where the Pharisee syndrome comes from. Knowing all the right answers, being very religious, knowing all about the Bible, but denying the real spiritual power of Christ in you is a, is a disaster. Uh, first, or Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power or ability has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us his own, to his own glory and excellence. And almost always in, in the Bible, that word knowledge, it's, it's more loaded than we sometimes use it. We use it sometimes just a, a series of information, but this is a very experiential knowledge. In other words, you have a living experiential relationship of knowing Christ. And that is uh, manifested in all these, these biblical godly fruits rather than the other way around. So... God's power comes through experientially knowing him, abiding in the vine, falling on his grace and on his righteousness. Uh, Jesus tells this story to make this very point. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, <laughs> extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. It's falling on the grace of our Savior 
and receiving his strength and his power. How do we, uh, how are we just aware of this? And I think first we need to look at our own hearts. And, and I think this is a good question to ask of, of ourselves. When someone else's sin is exposed, how does that affect me? Do I rejoice in that? Am I smug about that? Do I say, oh, I, I told you, I saw that coming. That's all slanderous, wanting somebody else to fail. But if I'm heartbroken, if I want to uh, put my arm around that person and, and pull them up and encourage them with the love and truth of Jesus, then that's a sign of genuineness and relationship with God. What does it mean when we look around? We, we need to not be enamored by, by spiritual lingo or, or Bible knowledge or things that, that can be external, but we need to have just a sensitivity to, to the heart, to the fruit of the Spirit coming out of people. So just be aware that there's mixed motives in, in any church and make sure your motives are sincere. So we have this uh, awareness, um, but this is mostly internal. Uh, we now we return to how do we respond outwardly? How do we actually interact with hidden enemies? And so the second thing, don't give a place to hidden enemies in the church. Paul just listed this big rotten list. He says, watch out for these people. And then at the end of uh, verse 5, he says simply, this is the second imperative, avoid these people. That's it. Just avoid them. And so as I was pondering this in my study, I thought, is he saying, is this a general command to stay away from people on this naughty list? And the more I thought about it, I thought, no, it really can't be because Jesus was the friend of sinners. And then we could see in the verses right before this that we looked at last week, the end of chapter 2, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. So Paul just finished telling him, be kind to everyone. And not only that, but patiently endure, put up with um, people, all kinds of nonsense and evil. So how do you put these things together? Avoid, but patiently endure. And I think... um, uh, here's what one commentator was, kind of a light went on. No doubt Paul had in mind here Timothy's official associations since he had already instructed Timothy to be kind to everyone. So in other words, Paul is writing these letters so Timothy knows how to establish uh, order and leadership in the churches and in Ephesus. And so I think what's happening is Paul saying, uh, Timothy, these people, don't, don't promote them. <laughs> don't recruit them. Don't, do, don't put them in roles of leadership in the church. Uh, avoid them at, at all costs. They might have all the resume. They might have all the lingo. They might have all this impressive stuff, but, but if they're not genuinely relying on the power of Christ, emitting the fruit of the Spirit, then stay away. Don't, don't put them into leadership roles. Occasionally, I'll share a little comment from this... Uh, this book's from the 80s, so it's a little dated, but uh, this guy says, this song isn't really special to me, but it does provide an excellent showcase for my voice. You know, the, the introductions to songs. And you think, uh, 
sometimes when you're around people, you think something just doesn't ring true here. And uh, I think Paul's point is, hey, I don't care if he's absolutely got this amazing, you know, talent on that instrument or voice or or this uh, spiritual background or whatever it might be. If his heart's not genuine for the Lord, don't recruit him. Avoid him. If you're in a small group together and you're saying, okay, who's going to be the leader? Well, so-and-so, they not only read the King James, they pray in King James. And uh, so we'll make them the leader automatically. I'm, I'm not dissing the King James. It's, it's uh, wonderful. But we have these external things where it's like, oh, we're looking for this. Look at the heart. I was leading uh, worship at another church, and a few people had nudged me saying, uh, this girl, that was, she was really talented. She hasn't been on the worship team recently, but she has, you know, she's really gifted, kind of getting the nudge. But I'd also seen her um, her uh, social network um, profile and realized that she was struggling with some things. And so I just had to have a kind of a gracious sort of heart-to-heart and say, we would really love you to be part of this worship ministry. But more important than that is that you're just really living right with the Lord. And and uh, we... we when you're right with the Lord, let's talk again about this kind of conversation. Even though it would be tempting to say, that's just what we need. It's really not just what we need. Um, at uh, Emmanuel Faith, where we were recently, there's, uh, you know, it's a big church, a lot of people. And uh, there's this one particular guy there that he had uh, seminary training, but, uh, but he wasn't in any kind of ministry. And he had a real cantankerousness to him. And uh, in, in like a class setting, he would call out the pastor that was teaching and correct him on the use of a Greek tense or something like that. But, but he didn't come across as just loving the Lord. And it would be easy to say, ooh, this guy's got these things, these things, let's sign him up. Don't do it. Well, I had some other illustrations, but time is wearing on. We could picture these things. <laughs> you can picture them. Don't, just don't seek to put people in ministry roles because of the external qualifications. In fact, in, in uh, the first part of the first letter to Timothy, Paul spent a lot of time describing the qualities of leadership, and they're all really heart, heart things, um, not things you would easily put on a resume. So why do we avoid giving these people a platform, giving them a voice if their heart's not sincere. It's because they lead people astray. They cause all kinds of wreckage. Don't be fooled by hidden enemies in the church. It's insidious. Here's what was happening uh, at Ephesus, apparently, in verse 6. Among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So uh, among them, in, among this group of insincere or slanderous enemies, there, there were some who creep into households. And these, this terminology is really kind of creepy. And, and I think it's maybe from a, almost like a military con, uh, context or language of like POWs. You're going in behind lines and you're capturing people and stuff like that. It says they creep into households and they capture, take captive um, these weak women. And uh, it, it's really a metaphor for what these, what these guys were doing. They were grabbing 
an audience. They were persuading, captivating the minds of this group of women in the church. Um, it's literally uh, little women. It's one word that means little women. It's, it's not these little women that some of you, uh, Alcott, uh, and it's not like small women talking about size, but it's these, this group of women, they were little in virtue. They were little in their discernment. They were little in their moral resolve and their spiritual understanding. And how they got that way? They got that way because, verse 6, they were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And the result in verse 7 they were always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. See, they were open to every new religious fad, every new convincing thing that came along, like, ooh, now that sounds good. Sign me up for that. Okay, objection or clarification. This was not Paul's attitude toward women in general. <laughs> He's talking about a certain group at Ephesus that was uh, a problem. And uh, he mentioned them probably the same ones in, in the first book as well. Uh, the church desperately needs strong women. Strong in virtue and discernment and moral resolve and spiritual understanding. The church desperately needs these women. Women play a really prominent place in the gospel narratives. Women were a big part of Jesus' ministry, sometimes in ways that was kind of scandalous. Uh, for that culture. He, he pushed the envelope of uh, involving women. Uh, women were significant in the early church. The church then and now needs women and men who are spiritually sincere. But this group of women in Ephesus, how, how did they go wrong? Where did they go wrong? And I think it describes it when it says they are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So I think this is how it works, is when we have a sin in our lives, we are doing something we know is wrong, and we want to justify it, we are so eager to rationalize and find and latch on to anything that comes around that can make us feel better about uh, keep continuing to do that thing we know is wrong. And that is the heart of so much spiritual misguidedness. Uh, Tom just mentioned this morning uh, Riverside um, and uh, how you could see a lot fewer uh, stars there. Um, my uh, father-in-law, he went to school in L.A. He was there a few months and looked out the window, and lo and behold, there's mountains right there that he had not seen uh, for a few months. He had no idea they were there. And uh, in our own hearts, this could be uh, real similar. Uh, we have unconfessed sin. We have things where bitterness we're harboring towards people. We have uh, all these little things that cloud our thinking. We, we can't see straight. We think we see straight, but we can't see straight because of the fog in our own hearts, in our own lives. You will not be spiritually discerning when you're driven by fleshly motives. Okay, here's just maybe a scenario. See if you can picture this. You're angry with somebody over a personal offense. You know, somebody in the church has wronged you in some way. You know, they forgot your birthday, whatever it was. You know, uh, maybe much more dramatic than that. Anyway, you have a problem with them, and you have not resolved that. And now you're quick to look for something to accuse them of. 
it's on your radar. Ooh, I'm going to see what they're going to do. You discover, oh, that person goes to, uh, to church on, on Saturday night. You know, maybe they're, they're part of a large church that has multiple services, and they go to on Saturday night. And you wonder, I wonder if it's even biblical to go to church on Saturday night. And so you start studying the Bible. Wait, the resurrection was on a Sunday, so we should celebrate the resurrection on the first day of the week. You start looking up blogs online. You start doing word studies and getting on in this, and you conclude that it's unbiblical to go to church on Saturday night. So you have gone through this whole thought process uh, uh, tainted by the bitterness you have toward that person. So these slanderous hearts that were harboring, you know, issues with other people, they were, and, and these, these group of weak-minded women um, tainted by sin, they had their spiritual insight totally wiped away. All they want to do is, is rationalize and trivialize and, and manipulate, and, they, and we don't even know it. We don't know when this is happening to us. We're being carried away because of the smog that's in our hearts. So confess. Come clean before the Lord. Ask him to, to, to purge that. Accept his forgiveness. Make amends with people. Keep a clean, a clean slate. And pretty soon you realize, oh, there's mountains right there. It becomes clearer and clearer. So don't be fooled by hidden enemies in the church. Okay, so we've talked about this problem of uh, in the last days, it's going to get worse and worse. There's going to be insincere people. And, you know, watch out for them. Don't be fooled because they're right around every corner and you might even be one of them. But then he ends by, by teaching us this. Yes, be aware. Yes, don't be fooled. But don't fret <laughs> about hidden enemies in the church. Oh, that's a relief, because that was starting to get a little bit overwhelming. Paul compares these hypocrites to a well-known Bible story. Uh, he does that by starting off with two names we've never heard of. Um, verse 8 and 9 says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So, Janus and Jamres, you, you won't find them in the Old Testament, those names, but these are just uh, traditional names given to um, the magicians of Pharaoh that were battling with, um, with Moses and with Aaron. So uh, the Old Testament, the Exodus is the most monumental uh, redemptive event of the Old Testament. In, in Jewish uh, culture, that's the, you know, that's the significant major redemptive event. Um, in, in our Bible, until you get to the cross, that's the major redemptive thing that happens. Every little Jewish kid knows the big showdown between these uh, magicians, given the names Janus and Jambres, and with, uh, with Moses. And I think this story teaches us two things. This hypocrisy, this slanderous, these whatever uh, people in the church that are not sincere... They are a real opposition. They're not just an annoyance. They are a real opposition. Like with Janice and Jambres, this was the big showdown. There was a lot at stake. But secondly, it teaches us that ultimately they will be exposed. They are going to fail. They are going to be um, made known. Their false teachings and insincere hearts are a real threat. But verse 9, they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, 
as was that of these two men. Don't fret, though ultimately they will fail. Some will be exposed soon, some will be exposed later. Ultimately, nobody fools God. Uh, here's a few uh, verses that remind us of this. Matthew 13, it's a parable about the kingdom, and there's, there's true followers of Jesus and, and those that aren't. Let both grow up together. Um, wheat and weeds right together. They're growing up right in the same place. Until the harvest. And at that harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So ultimately, there's a time when it'll all be sorted out. You know, in the meantime, they're all together and it's hard to tell which is which, but God knows and he'll sort them out. Another um, big day passage. Each one's work will become manifest. We looked at this a few months back, 1 Corinthians 3. Each one's work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. See, ultimately, they'll be exposed. One more. 1 Peter 1, 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, see, that's what we're talking about, is being genuine, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, when Christ is revealed, it will all be sorted out. So even if those, those sneaky, insincere people uh, never get found out now, they certainly will get found out then. As I thought about this and the certainty of it, it made me muse a little bit about this show I watched in my young childhood called Scooby-Doo. And uh, er, if you, who's watched Scooby-Doo? Several of you have admitted this. The plot is always the same. It always ends with the great reveal of who the villain is. It's like, why? It's Mr. So-and-so, the gardener. You know, it's like this. And I actually found online there's... Um, in less than four minutes, they have all 41 episodes, the great reveal, just showed one after another. It's like, drives the point home that, yes, in the end day, in the last 45 seconds of each episode, the, the villain will be revealed. And here's, this is what um, happens in, in our passage. Janice and Jambres, they are shown to be frauds. They uh, are no match for the power and truth of God. In Bible college, uh, one of my professors, Dr. Emmert, um, he was speaking to some of us one day, and he just got up and he listed several names, maybe a dozen, maybe more, and he just, he just said the names, one after another. I think just first names. And after he did that, he said, these are people he knows personally who have been in ministry and are no longer in ministry because of some kind of moral failure. Um, it's like, Wow. That's a, that's a heavy thing. He knew these people in one way or another, personally, and, uh, and they were exposed. They were living a double life, or they, they floundered or fell in some way, and they're out of the ministry. Just like Janice and Jambres, they were revealed for what they really are. We need to look at our hearts. We need to be genuine. We need to confess sin. We need to to cling to the Lord and fall on His grace and His love and His mercy and not, and not pretend. So, we need to be aware 
but we don't need to fret about hidden enemies of the church because the Lord, the Lord knows. Okay, just to kind of conclude, um, we know some people in church are not sincere because when I say, we don't want to go to church because everyone there is a bunch of hypocrites, you finish the line. So you're aware of this concept already, and, and Paul tells us uh, in this passage that that's certainly the case. So what do we do about that? First, just be on the lookout. Not on the lookout like questioning every person, like, ooh, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not sure about. No, but first look at our own heart and just don't be enamored by, by external things. And then, you know, don't, don't give a place to that in the church. Don't, don't, you know, promote someone to leadership roles because of external things if their heart is not for the Lord. Um, don't be fooled. And how do we keep from being fooled is we keep our own hearts clean before the Lord, and that gives us spiritual eyes to see. But finally, ah, we don't have to fret because the Lord knows either sooner or later all will be revealed. I think the very best response to insincerity is sincerity. Be the real deal. Um, that's what we all need to be. I think our, our main challenge here is just be, be genuine. Be like, uh, like Timothy, the genuine child, the true child in the faith, just falling on Jesus and his grace and his mercy. mercy. Genuine faith, genuine hope, and genuine love. Let's ask the Lord together for this.